All right, so this morning we are going to spend our time looking at Psalm 32. If you'd like to turn there and follow along. So, whenever people tell stories, there's lots of different approaches that they take, right? One approach that I like to storytelling is, um, and it probably actually says something about who I am, but I really like whenever um, they give you a peek at the end, right? Kind of like you're reading the last page of a book. I like whenever the person telling the story kind of gives you a little peek behind the curtain, like, hey, this is where we're going, and then goes back to the beginning, be like, okay, and this is how we got here. As I look at Psalm 32, I think that's kind of what's going on. Because Psalm 32 begins with David saying, hey, this is who is blessed. It's like he gives us a look at the end result, but then it's almost like he works backwards and takes us on, takes us back through this journey that he has been on and gives us kind of like snapshots along the way. And as he does, he tells us, hey, this is what sin does. This is what confession does. And this is what God does. And these are kind of the three things we'll look at this morning. What sin does, what confession does, and what God does. So let's look at Psalm 32 together. It says there, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Church, these are the words of God from the mouth of God. He has given them to us because he loves us, and these words are true. Did any of y'all ever have to endure the show and the Brady Bunch? If you did, then you'll know why I will say endure. Like, and some of you are probably like, I like that show. But I haven't seen it for years. But man, I remember years and years ago, I watched this episode that's kind of stuck with me for some reason. And it all centers around the middle brother, Peter. Peter has this big camping trip he's supposed to be going on later that weekend. But one day during the week, him and his brothers and sisters are playing ball in the house and they knock over and break their mom's favorite vase. But instead of just owning up, it's like, hey, sorry, they decide that they'll try to cover it up and just kind of glue it back together. Well, that night, because he's A plus dad, the dad brings home flowers, gives them to the mom. She puts them in her favorite vase. She puts water in the vase. She sets them on the table because it's the Brady Bunch. They all sit around the table like they're supposed to and they're having dinner and all of a sudden, it springs a leak. And so one of them's like, and plugs the hole and keeps eating nonchalantly. Well, pretty soon it springs another leak. So another kid plugs the hole and just keeps eating. Well, pretty soon all the kids have their hands on the vase and yet water is still coming out. And naturally the mom's finally like, oh my gosh, my vase, what happened? Well, 
the siblings, because Peter has this big trip and they actually like one another because it's the Brady Bunch, um, they all try to kind of cover for Peter, right? But throughout the episode, you can see, based on his body language and like the words he says, like his guilt is eating him up inside. Now look, I understand, again, once again, I understand it's the Brady Bunch, but what Peter is experiencing in that is actually kind of a reflection of what we see here in Psalm 32. As this psalm opens, David declares, hey, this is who is blessed. It's the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. It's the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Notice in these first two verses, David has used three different words to describe what you and I might just say, oh yeah, that's sin. He uses the word transgression, which means rebellion. He uses sin, which means to just miss the mark that has been set out. And he uses the word iniquity, meaning to be twisted or crooked. We might wonder, why did David use all these terms? It's like, oh, well, this is a, like a song or maybe a poem. So maybe he did it because it rhymed in the original language or had the right amount of syllables or something like that. Maybe he's a super smart guy and wants to show off. I don't know. But maybe more important than asking why would he use these words, like what, is it for one of these reasons, is what was David thinking about during this time? What was he reflecting on as he wrote this psalm? While we can't know for sure, most scholars think that he's actually reflecting back on a time in his life that's recorded in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, the story of David and Bathsheba. In this time of David's life, his army had gone out to battle, but David had stayed home. And it says one day he's in his palace, and he looks out, and he sees a woman bathing on a roof. And David calls for her, but he does so knowing something about her. That woman's another man's wife. That's the wife of Uriah. That's a man that man, the Bible spoke well of. Uriah was David's friend. Uriah was a man out doing battle on David's behalf. But David calls for her, says he lays with her, she conceives. And whenever David tries to cover it up and the plan blows up in his face, he has Uriah killed and then brings in Bathsheba and takes her to be his wife. But it's not where the story ends. Because it says then the prophet Nathan comes in and says, David, because of your sin, this child is going to die. And this thing that David thought was a secret had been brought to the light. What he thought was concealed has now been exposed for all to see. And if this is the time in David's life that he is reflecting on as he writes this psalm, it would make sense that he would use all these different words for what you and I might just call sin. Because David could see his transgression. Remember, meaning rebellion. He could see where he had rebelled against God. He had rebelled and broke the seventh commandment to not commit adultery, the sixth commandment to not kill, the eighth commandment to not steal, the tenth commandment to not covet what was his neighbor's, in this case, his wife. He could also see his sin. He could see where he had missed the mark that God had set out. And he could see his iniquity or the crookedness of his inward nature he had given way to. David can start out this psalm by saying, man, it's blessed to be forgiven because, man, he knows what it's like to be entangled in all of these things. And we do too, right? We know what it's like to be entangled in our sin. We know what it's like to be entangled in our transgression, right? Transgression meaning rebellion. 
We know where we openly rebel against God. We know where we have looked at the commands where God has said, hey, do this. And we're like, yeah, I don't think so. We know where God has said, hey, don't do this. We're like, yeah, I'm going to do that anyway. It's your transgression. We know our sin, meaning like we know where we have earnestly tried to do what God has commanded. And we've just failed. And we also know our iniquity or the twisted and crooked inward nature that we deal with. How do we know our iniquity? If you look at Romans 7, Paul says, man, what I want to do is the thing that I don't do. And the thing that I hate doing, that's the thing I keep doing. Whatever that thing is for you points to your iniquity. You know, as believers, or just as people, we hate to be reminded of our sin. But it's actually a blessing for us. Because only when we know our sin, only when we're aware of our sin, and at the same time know there is a remedy for it, only then can we actually have hope. Only when we know there is hope of forgiveness and covering can we not fall into despair. You know, Augustine said that the beginning of understanding is to know thyself a sinner. David has opened this psalm with a picture of hope and forgiveness that he experienced on the other side of knowing himself a sinner. But then in verses 3 and 4, he, he flashes back and he begins to describe, yeah, but this is what it was like for me before I acknowledged what I knew to be true, before I experienced forgiveness for these sins. David describes the physical toll that his unconfessed sin took on him. He had kept it bottled up and it began to consume him from within. You know, and you know why it did that? Because sin is a cancer. Think about what cancer does. It becomes a part of us. It attaches to us and it attacks us from the inside. It shows outward symptoms, right? But the degree of damage that it's doing to us is often unknown until it is so greatly progressed. Cancer has to be dealt with. It has to be cut out or else it always ends in the same way. Cancer ends in death of some kind. And our sin is the same way. Sin attaches to us and it attacks us. And our outward sins, our outward actions, these are just symptoms of the sickness that is in our heart. And it does great damage on the unseen parts of us, our minds and our souls. Sin must be acknowledged, dealt with, and cut out, or else the Bible tells us in Romans, it leads to death, always. But here's the problem. We so often don't treat sin like a disease that's wreaking havoc on us. We treat it like a cold. Think about things, if you're like me, things that you say about a cold. It's not that big of a deal. I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Or, I'm not going to take the medicine. I can, ha I can handle it. I'll be okay. Or, it's fine. It's going to go away on its own. Come on, people. Some of y'all are like me. Right? We say these things about a cold because we're like, ah, cold's kind of minor. But you wouldn't say those things about cancer. We treat our sin like it's a cold. It's not that big of a deal. I can handle the effects that my sin will bring. You know, in time, things in my life are going to change. I'm just going to mature as a person. It's thing will probably go away on its own. 
Y'all, sin's not a cold. Sin is a cancer that is killing people. The Bible never describes sin in a minor way. Even here, David's not describing sin in any kind of minor way. He's like, look, it actually had a physical toll on me. I'm physically wasting away. It is depleting my strength, and that's not even the worst part of it. The worst part of it, he starts to describe at the beginning of verse 4, when he talks about the hand of God being heavy on him. You know, John Calvin said, the greatest of all afflictions is to be heavy pressed with the hand of God. As I think about my life, I'm like, dude, I get that. I know what it's like to feel the Spirit pressing on me. I know what it's like to feel the hand of God pushing me towards confession and repentance. If you're a believer, that means that you know that feeling too. It's actually one of the ways we know that we belong to Jesus. In 1 Peter 5, 6, it tells us that hand pressing on us is meant to do something. It's meant to humble us so that in time God might exalt us. As you feel that hand pressing on you, you might know that God is intending to do something. You might know that he is intending to push you on towards confession and repentance and change. But do you let God's hand do that work? Or as you feel God pressing on you, do you begin to try and press back? You know, in those months of David's life, he knew what the hand of God was doing. And remember, this was not like a few days that David was going through this. It's enough time for him to commit adultery, for this pregnancy to come to term, and for the prophet to come to him. So for months, David is feeling this hand of God on him. And all that time, he was resisting the prodding of the Spirit. And we might even wonder, like, man, how could a dude who the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart, how could he resist God's hand like that? Christian, Let's set that aside and not ask, how could David do that? Let, let's be like, how, could I, how can I do that? Whenever you feel God's hand, do you ignore it or try to push back and resist it? Have, have you ever, or are you now even, trying to resist the hand of God, press back against it and ignore it? Have you, are you even now trying to do that? maybe to the point that you've started to become numb to the Spirit's prodding? Has your heart started to become hard? As believers, we're foolish to think this can't happen to us. Mark chapter 6 talks about the disciples. You know those dudes who were like mentored by the Son of God himself? Mark chapter 6 says their hearts became hard. The Bible makes it very clear, 11 out of those 12 dudes were believers. We should never think that pressing back against the hand of God doesn't have effects on us. As David resisted, pushed back, ignored the prodding of the Spirit, he did so knowing something. Sin always ends bad. He had the whole history of his people He even had the example of King Saul who was right before him. It's like, oh yeah, sin always is destructive. And you know, we're no different. We have countless examples of seeing this is what sin does. But you know what we have that David didn't? We have the picture of the cross. What does sin ultimately lead to? Leads to the Son of God taking on flesh, becoming like us, being tortured and ridiculed. Having the full wrath of God poured out on him. Enduring death in the cross. This is what sin ultimately leads to. 
We have even more of a picture than what David did. Of This is where sin leads. Sin has emotional, physical, relational, and spiritual effects. 2 Samuel, Psalm 32. Just look at this episode in the life of David. All of these effects were present. And they're present in your life and mine as well. Because this is what sin does. So David has shown us, this is what sin does to a person. But in chapter five, or verse 5, then, he begins to move off of that. And he says, but this is what confession does. So I mentioned that Brady Bunch episode earlier. It said, like, you could really see the toll that this unconfessed sin was taking on Peter. He, what did he need to do? He just needed to confess to his parents, right? And here's the thing. Parents already knew. They figured out who it was mainly because all the other kids but him confessed. So, like, if you're ever going to do this as siblings, just everybody own it. All right? Take the punishment together or, make, or rat out the one who did it. Or not. So his parents had figured out Peter's the one that broke the vase. And at the end, here's, here's what happens. As his, the day for his big camping trip has arrived, he has his bag packed his sleeping bag under his arm. His parents are telling him goodbye as all his other siblings are um, doing chores for their punishment. Peter starts to walk towards the car. He turns around. He's like, I can't go in his whiny voice. He's like, I can't go. Why not? Because he's the one that broke the vase. And in that moment, the relief that he felt and then, like, it could be seen on his face, right? Like, his body language changed. And I understand he's an actor, but, like, he, he did good. Whiny voice and all, he did good. Peter even owned up to, I'm the one that did it. Knowing this, I'm not getting off scot-free. Like, there are going to be repercussions. I'm still going to be punished for what I had done. But the relief that came as he unburdened himself from that weight, from that guilt and that shame, it made it all worth it. Whenever David sinned with Bathsheba, even though no one else or maybe very, other, very few other people would have known, somebody always knew. God always knew. His hand had been heavy on him, calling him to confess and repent. And whenever that confession came for David, look how he describes it in verse 5. It paints this picture that David's confession was complete. It's total. It's unreserved. He even uses the same three words he used in the beginning. Sin, iniquity, and transgression. What we see is David owned all of his sin. He didn't try to minimize it. He didn't try to explain it away. He didn't try to shift the blame off onto someone else. He made no excuse like, no, 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 this is all me. This is my sin, my transgression, and my iniquity. He is saying, God, look, I acknowledge that what you say about me is true. I'm actually not as bad as I think I am. I am far, far worse. Christian, is that how you confess your sin? Do you, own, do you always own your sin as your own? Do you ever try to minimize it? To make excuses for it? Do you ever try to shift some of that off? It's like, well, so-and-so did this. I mean, that's why, you know, that's why I did it. You know, sin that, is, that excuses are made for, sin that you try to minimize, sin that you try to shift off onto other people, you know, that's sin that's not truly confessed. 
If it's not truly confessed, that means you can't, that you haven't truly repented of it. Which means that in your heart, don't do that. That means that in your heart, that sin on your side has not truly been dealt with. That it has not been uprooted. That you are not actually trying to put it to death. In your confession, do you acknowledge that apart from Jesus, you really are as broken and helpless and hopeless as the Bible says that you are? As you confess, do you confess the darkest parts of who you are? Do you confess the things you don't want anyone else to know? Do you confess the things that bring you the most guilt and shame? Do you name the things that you don't even want to think about? Do you get back in the recesses of your heart and soul and say, yeah, that's me. Those are the things that I've done. This is the truth about who I am. Man, confession like that can be terrifying. But you know what? Confession like that, though it is scary, is worth it. Because it brings relief. It brings freedom. It brings unhindered relationship with God. This is what the language David uses here is meant to convey to us. As he talks about being forgiven, it's actually supposed to, it's actually supposed to draw us to imagery that for most of us it probably doesn't. But it's supposed to give us the imagery of having a burden removed and carried away. For the original audience, for Old Testament believers, it would actually draw them to a very specific day in their year where the priest would symbolically take the sins of the people, lay it on the head of what was called the scapegoat, and then that goat would be led away from the presence of the people never to be seen again. This is the imagery that we are supposed to get as we read this. As David uses the word covered, it's to remind us that our sin has been concealed. Not in some shady, like, sneak it out the back door while nobody's looking kind of way, but in a covered, out of sight, never to be seen or remembered by God again kind of way. And this forgiving or covering, it's not on account of anything that... For David, it wasn't on account of anything he did. It's not because he confessed using, like, the right formula. It's not because, like, he just felt super bad about it. Right? Like, that's not why. This forgiving and covering was only on account of the finished work of Jesus. In his day, yet to be completed. That's the blood of Jesus is what would cover those sins for him. And this forgiving or covering is offered to us as well. And the blood of Jesus, this finished work, is the only reason that we can experience that. This forgiveness that God offers to us, it, it's not cheap. It costs the Son of God greatly. His forgiveness is not cheap, but for us it is free. And it is freeing. David has told us sin leads to destruction, which brings the hand of God to move us to confession and repentance. And this leads to forgiveness and freedom, which leads us to joy in God as we realize what He does. God not only forgives us, he leads us to joy in Him. You know, only when you're in Christ can you have true joy. We hear people use the word joy that aren't Christians, but you know they actually, they're using the wrong word. Most of the time they should use the word happy. Because true joy is only experienced and can only be found in Christ. Unbelievers can experience happiness. But man, happiness is frail and fleeting, and it's easily taken away. 
True joy can only be found when we turn in repentance to God. But in this psalm, David warns us of something. You need to turn to God while he may be found. He is saying, look, don't presume on the patience of God. Just because God is slow to anger, it doesn't mean that you'll know when his patience comes to an end. It's always dangerous to presume that something will always be there. We're warned not to delay. Because David says there will come a day, and he calls it the rush of the great waters. That phrase makes me think about the story of Noah, right? Like in the time of Noah, as he is building the ark, this would be the time when God was near, right? When the people could call on him. But in that time, the people didn't turn. Instead, they waited till the door on the ark was shut. And there was quite literally a rush of great waters for them. But in that time, it was too late. But Noah wasn't reached by those rushing waters because he had turned to and been obedient to God's instruction. That's something else David tells us in this psalm. Verses 8 and 9, he tells us, look, be obedient to God's instruction because God instructs, he teaches, he counsels. How does he do that? For us, it's primarily through his word. Shorter catechism, what do the scriptures principally teach? what man is to believe about God, what duty God requires of us. If this is what God is teaching us in his word, then we, have, we need to be reading it and studying it, praying it, believing it, and placing ourselves under the preaching and teaching of it. And as God instructs us, David tells us, hey, don't be like these animals. Don't be like a horse or a mule. So it might surprise you all, I'm not much of a horse rider. I know I look the part, but it's not true. So as I had read this and like heard teaching on this before, I'd always assumed something. I'd always assumed it's like, oh yeah, he's talking about their stubbornness. But there's a guy named Warren Worsby, and he said there's actually, he's like, I want you to think there might be something more going on in this verse. There might be a reason David uses these two different animals. He says, think about a horse. What does a horse often want to do? It wants to run ahead. It wants to bolt forward. It wants you to just let it go. But what about a mule? You're not struggling with the same thing. It's stubborn, right? Like it is slow and lags behind. And for these very different reasons, a bit and bridle are needed for both. And I think it's why David uses both. It's like, oh, I see myself in both of these. Because David, think about the story of him and Bathsheba. He was quick to bolt ahead into his sin. Like the horse. But man, he was slow and stubborn to confess and repent of what he had done. And you know, this doesn't just describe David, man. This describes me. I'll confess to you, I am quick to run into my sin. You know, so often I am slow to confess, even to confess, even to own like, yeah, I did it. I'll be slow to confess and to repent, meaning like to actually turn from it. Does that resonate with you? Do you often find that you will rush into your sin, but be slow to confess, repent and turn from it? David knew firsthand, like, look, I can tell you about the pain and the sorrow that comes from this. So he encourages us, man, don't make the mistake that I did. Instead, follow the instruction of God. Christian, why do we follow God's instruction? We do so because of, one, who he is. 
He's the God of all universe. And two, because of what he has done for us. This psalm tells us he surrounds us with steadfast love and shouts of deliverance. It says that he is a hiding place for us. It says that he preserves us. And most importantly, because of the work of Christ on our behalf, he forgives our transgression. He covers our sins. And he doesn't count our iniquity against us. Because of that, even though we still struggle in our sin, those of us that are in Christ can say, just as David did here in verses 6 and 11, that we are godly, that we are righteous, and that we are upright in heart. If you are in Christ, you are positionally these things. Meaning, like, as God looks at you, He does not just see you covered in sin. Instead, He sees you covered in the perfection of Jesus. And so, positionally, you are upright in heart. You are godly and you are righteous. Though we are not yet practically these things. But we do have hope. The hope that the Spirit is at work in us, making us into these things that we are already declared to be. We lean into that hope promised in Philippians 1.6 that the Spirit will one day complete this. Where in glory, for all eternity, we will get to celebrate with one another with David and with all the saints of all time what God has done for us and what he is doing even now in us. So what should all of this lead us to? It should lead us to rejoicing in the Lord. Because if you're a believer, you have what every soul ever created is made for and deeply longs for. Knowing that we are pardoned, knowing that we are blessed, it should lead us to praise. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, Pardoning mercy is of all things in the world to be most prized, for it is the only sure way to joy. Christian, know the pardoning mercy of God. Find rest and assurance in it. And when His hand is heavy on you, pressing you, leading you towards confession and repentance, be quick to run to that mercy. Be quick to lean into it. Be quick to go to the cross so that your burden might be removed, so that he might take away your guilt and your shame. And if you're not a believer, the invitation for you is open to come to Jesus. He will cover your sin. He will remove your burden. He will take your guilt and your shame. He will give you joy. He will give you a reason to be glad and rejoice. And most importantly, he will wrap you in his righteousness. For all of us, let us hear the invitation from God in this psalm to not live in darkness and silence, to not bottle up our sin and let it eat away at us. Let us not waste away. But instead, hear the call to live in the light, to join in the joyous songs of the saints, and to be renewed and replenished by our Savior who loves us and has covered all of our sin. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you for the psalm, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, David. We thank you that um, your spirit led him to write in a way that was so honest, that would tell us, like, this is what your sin will cause. But to not leave us there, to remind us, man, that there is forgiveness in you, that your love is steadfast despite the fact that, man, we are wavering and sinful. Yeah, make us people who respond quickly as your hand is heavy on us god let it let it truly lead us to repentance teach us not to resist or ignore you pray that you would keep that promise that you have made that 
you will make us more and more like Jesus and that one day in glory that work will be complete. Give us eyes to look forward to that. Remind us of the hope that we have in Jesus. We ask you would do these things for our good and most importantly for your glory. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.